and gentlemen, welcome to Exhibition History, the place to be for the greatest stories the world has ever known. Join us for each sword episode where we cover the greatest adventures and voyages of the past. Exhibition History, Episode 3, The Saga of Harald Hardrada. The date was July 29th in the year 1030 AD. Perched atop a low-lying hill outside the town of Stickelstad, Norway, stood the hardened army of Olaf Haraldsson, more than 6,000 strong. Composed of Olaf's loyal retinue of veteran Norwegian warriors, his army had been reinforced in the build-up to the campaign by skilled mercenary Vikings from Sweden. Forced to flee his homeland a few years earlier after being politically outmaneuvered by Danish king Knut the Great, Olaf had finally returned, hell-bent on reclaiming his rightful place on the Norwegian throne. Arrayed before him at the bottom of the hill were 15,000 soldiers, led by two prominent nobles in support of King Knut hell-bent themselves on squashing Olaf's armed homecoming. Composed of a vast horde of levied men from the farms and fields of Scandinavia, this Danish force is known to history as the Great Peasant Army. Gazing out upon his opposition, Olaf knew his position was untenable. He was outnumbered two to one, and his hilltop was unfortified. Holding his exposed position was akin to suicide. He had to act, and at a time like this, he must have thought, the best defense is a hell of a strong offense. Giving the order, Olaf formed his men into a series of the dreaded Svinfelking, or boar formation, wedge formations with their tips pointed towards the enemy, meant to break through any poor defender that dare stand before them. Once his men were in formation, Olaf gave the signal, and with a great shout, his men barreled downhill, violently slamming into the peasant lines as the frightened peasants tried to form a cohesive defense. Now locked in combat, the two armies began to hack away at each other, with rudimentary Viking tactics more than being made up for by the sheer ferocity of the warriors involved. Bodies of men closed in with each other and slugged it out at close range, swords and axes pounding away at shields before making their way into a man's flesh, as spears were tossed overhead and thrust by hand into the bellies of those on both sides. The Norwegians exacted a tremendous toll in the defending Danes, but though superior in quality, Olaf's men were far inferior in numbers, and with each individual loss, their strength greatly diminished. As the battle raged over the course of the day, the numbers of the great peasant army began to tell, and Olaf's army found itself hard-pressed, with the center of the army barely holding on to its position as its flanks were slowly pushed back. As the army found itself in increasingly dire straits, disaster struck. In personal combat against the Danish commanders, Olaf Haraldsson was slain on the field. On the verge of being overwhelmed, and with their leader lying lifeless at the foot of the enemy, the army disintegrated, its survivors fleeing into the surrounding countryside. Elise... This is how the Viking sagas tell it. Modern historians and archaeologists dispute the exact details of both the battle and Olaf's death to this day. But regardless of what actually happened in 1030 AD, Olaf's claim to the Norwegian throne, in some way or another, had now been rendered mute. The lands of Norway now truly belonged to King Knut. As the army disappeared into the surrounding hills and forests, a lone teenager ran for his life. Though only 15 years old, this young man had taken an active role at the front of Olaf's shield wall, demonstrating great skill and tenacity in battle, though he had been severely injured for his troubles. The half-brother of Olaf, he had fought his way out of the near encirclement and fled the field upon his army's defeat, knowing that his capture would result in immediate execution. His name was Harald Sigurdsson, and in time, he would return to Norway with an undiminished vengeance. Now wounded and alone behind enemy lines, Harald was whisked away by an aristocratic family friend sympathetic to Olaf's cause. For the better part of a month, Harald healed and regained his strength, all the while laying low so as not to garner any unwanted attention as the heat died down. As Olaf's half-brother, 
Harald possessed a strong claim to the Norwegian throne, making him a high-profile target for Knut as the Danish king exerted control over his Norwegian lands. If Harald remained in Norway, it was only inevitable that he would be discovered, captured, and executed by the Danes to preserve Knut's right to rule. To survive meant that he had to escape, and after healing from his wounds, eventually, the time was right for him to leave. Departing eastern Norway, Harald traveled south into the modern-day country of Ukraine, arriving at the court of Grand Prince Yaroslav the Wise of Kiev in late 1030. Though he was now in the far-off lands of the Kievan Rus, young Harald was in good hands. Upon his arrival, he was personally greeted almost immediately by Grand Prince Yaroslav himself, who was elated to take Harald in. In years past, Yaroslav and Olaf had been close friends and allies, the two rulers cementing their bonds through alliances and marriage, and it was in Kiev where the exiled remnants of Olaf's court had sought shelter after Olaf lost the throne to Knut in 1028. Of those who now resided in Kiev, the most important figure to us, besides Harald of course, is that of Olaf's son, Magnus, now the rightful heir to the Norwegian throne. He isn't too important now, but remember his name. Now under the protection of Yaroslav, Harald took the obvious path for an exiled, disenfranchised young noble with a reputation of combat prowess and joined the army of the Kievan Rus. Here, Harald would spend the next three years of his life soaring through the ranks, joining campaign after campaign and fighting Kiev's enemies on all fronts. He battled the Poles of the West, the Pechenegs, a semi-nomadic steppe tribe, to the south and a number of Baltic and Finnic tribes to the north. By the age of 18, he had attained the rank of captain in the Kievan army, an impressive feat regardless of any army in any age. It really makes you wonder what you're doing with your life, doesn't it? Was this rapid ascent through the ranks because he joined every campaign this side of the Vistula? It certainly helped. Was it because he was a high-born friend of Yaroslav? That too, obviously played a part. But it's also incredibly important to look at who Harald was. He wasn't the product of aristocratic nepotism. Rather, he was a natural-born warrior, the epitome of a Viking man. At the Battle of Stickelstad, he had already proven himself a skilled combatant, and now a true man, he was unlike any other. He is described by the sources as having a hard face covered in a thick mustache and beard, and standing approximately seven feet tall in height, absolutely dwarfing every other man he came across. In battle, his unmatched courage and skill at arms was rivaled only by his guile, the strength of his body and sharpness of his mind easily able to overcome any who dare cross him. Yet despite his rapid success, Harald knew his destiny lay beyond the borders of Kiev, and he yearned for more. Yaroslav had been a great mentor, friend, and father figure to the young Harald, but it was time for the next chapter in his life. Restless, he left Yaroslav with a small retinue of a few hundred hardened warriors and sailed for Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire and the hub of the eastern Mediterranean. Having arrived in the illustrious city, Harald found that his reputation had well preceded him. Though it is unknown exactly how familiar the Byzantine court was with Harald's early exploits, Harald was quickly taken in by the Byzantine Emperor Michael IV, his benefactor for years to come, and found himself added to the roster of the fearsome Varangian Guards. At this point in history, the Varangian Guards were recognized throughout the known world as renowned warriors. Their ranks were drawn almost entirely from Norsemen of Rus and Scandinavian descent. Loyal only to their paymaster, the Emperor, on account of their foreign birth, they served a crucial role as imperial bodyguards to the Byzantine head of state and protectors of the royal family. Perhaps more importantly, however, they were the most professional soldiers the Empire could call on in times of conflict. Mixing Viking brutality and skill at arms with Byzantine organization and financing, they were a potent force, and as such, were frequently used as heavy infantry and elite shock troops, playing a decisive role in many victorious battles. It was here where Harold would absolutely thrive. In the early 1000s, the Byzantine Empire was painstakingly searching for a cure to something they had been plagued with for ages, 
Arab pirates. Darting across the eastern Mediterranean, their nimble raiding parties were far too fast to be caught by the cumbersome Byzantine war fleets, far too skilled to reliably be taken with only a small flotilla, and far too resilient to let the occasional minor defeat stem their tide. Preying on the lucrative trade routes of the eastern Mediterranean, the pirates wreaked havoc on merchant shipping, taking lives, making slaves, and disappearing over the waves with as much wealth as they could carry. The empire's economy was being devastated, and the Byzantines were desperate to bring them to heel. Enter Harald Sigurdsson. Michael IV, seemingly recognizing Harald's Nordic roots and his natural talent as a sailor, selected Harald to spearpoint the empire's anti-piracy campaign at sea, hoping to dampen the marauders' efforts and put a dent in their numbers. But Harald would do far more than that. Putting his naval experience to the test, he would lead the Varangian fleet in the strategic outmaneuvering of the pirates at sea, utilizing the speed of the quick Viking longships to force the raiders into a series of decisive engagements. As the opposing vessels drew closer to each other, the Norsemen aboard would begin to hurl spears, javelins, and small throwing axes onto the decks of the Arab ships, whittling away at the pirates' numbers, before crashing into the Arab ships themselves. Forced against each other, the opposing Norse and Arab ships would instantly be converted from individual lightning raiding platforms into a collective floating battlefield, solid oaken ground upon which the formidable Norse warriors would then close in for the deciding action. Boarding the enemy vessels, the heavily armed Varangians made short work of the lightly equipped pirates. Far more accustomed to fast raids on villages and merchant vessels than pitch combat against Viking warriors, the raiders fell to the Norsemen in droves like wheat before a scythe. In no time at all, Harald had cleansed the entire eastern Mediterranean of the pirate threat, with not one corsair daring to challenge him upon the waves. But he wasn't done yet. Harald knew that his efforts at sea would be all for nothing if the pirates simply returned upon his absence. After all, their ability to bounce back from otherwise crushing defeats was one of the traits that made them such a difficult foe to counter. He wouldn't hound them forever, and the heads of the Hydra would only grow back in time. So he went straight for the heart. After purging the pirate fleets at sea, he landed in southeastern Anatolia, modern Turkey, a region with a long-held tradition of aiding and abetting maritime criminals, and began a highly successful land campaign against the pirate power bases and sanctuaries, storming countless camps, hideouts, and hidden ports, slaughtering the defenders and entirely annihilating the raiders' base of support. Defeated on land and sea, the Arab pirates were eradicated. Peace could now return to the trade routes of the eastern Mediterranean. Utterly victorious, Harald returned to Constantinople. His reward for the eradication of the Arab pirates was, wait for it, more military action against the Arabs. Once again taking the fight to them over land, Harald and the Varangians joined a Byzantine offensive that pushed the Arabs back from the border in eastern Anatolia all the way to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Riding high on his success against the pirates and now making a name for himself in a proper campaign, Harald's performance never went unnoticed. Leaving behind his position of captain, the rising Norwegian was promoted to the leader of the Varangian Guard. Harald, now more than ever, was a force to be reckoned with. In command of the finest corps of soldiers in all of the empire, Harald pushed his men to ever-daring feats of courage, always in pursuit of gold and glory, casting aside any Arab who dare stand before them. Often one of, if not the first man on the wall, Harald led his force in every offensive they encountered, placing himself in harm's way before any other could, cleaving his way through the defending Arabs and forging a path in blood for those warriors behind him to arrive, each man equally lusting for action. Taking the walls, Harald would then lead his Norsemen down into the streets where the Varangian guards, each armored head to toe in thick male armor and armed with some combination of sword, shield, 
battle axe, or heavy spear, plowed through the defending Arabs, throwing them back into their respective castle keeps and town squares before forcing their surrender or taking them by storm. According to the Viking sagas, in this way, upon the end of the campaign, Harald had led the seizure of a whopping 80 fortified towns and castles. After these campaigns in the east, Harald continued to lead the Varangians overland against the enemies of the empire, this time in the Levant, geographically referred to nowadays as the area around Syria, Jordan, Palestine, and Israel. Though the sagas and modern historians once again differ on the timeline and what actually occurred, he had almost certainly spent time in the area. The sagas tell of how he won a series of military victories in the vicinity of Jerusalem and was instrumental in forcing the Fatimid Caliphate, an Islamic empire based out of Egypt, into a peace treaty with the Byzantines, fostering temporary peace in the region. In contrast, modern historians claim he was most likely in the area not as a decisive warrior, but rather as an escort to Byzantine VIPs, perhaps protecting the royal family on pilgrimage or watching out for those sent to repair the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but nonetheless was able to flex his muscles in combat against the infamous bandits that preyed on travelers along the road to Jerusalem. Yet, regardless of what truly occurred, his exploits in the Levant only raised his prestige to new heights. Now a sure bet in the eyes of the Emperor, Harald and his Varangians were sent to accompany the Byzantine general George Maniakes on his westward offensive to Sicily in 1038. Once one of the Roman Empire's most important provinces, the island was conquered by the Arabs in 902 AD, something that never sat well with the Byzantine court. Eager to take it back, they dispatched Maniakes with a large force of Byzantine soldiers, Varangian guards, and Norman mercenaries to reclaim the Arab-held island for the glory of Rome. The Normans, Hailing from the northern coast of France, were led by a brave warrior by the name of William de Hauteville, a man who had won the moniker Iron Arm for killing the Arab emir of Syracuse in single combat, and whose family of Norman adventurers deserves an episode in their own right. Remember the Normans, because this won't be the only time their kind is mentioned in this episode. Getting back on topic, Maniakis' force was stacked with historical heavyweights, but though the initial invasion was a success, the entire effort eventually fell flat due to the Byzantine Empire's famous Achilles' heel political unrest. Poor political maneuvering on Maniaki's part led to his recall by the emperor in 1040 AD. Though the overall effort in Sicily falls apart with Maniaki's departure, the two years of success the army met up to that point had done much to bolster Harald's prestige. Sources tell us that Harald and the Varangians captured four strategic towns, and though their names are unfortunately lost to history, in one of these sieges, however, lies an extraordinary example of Harald's craft and guile, building upon the epic of an already legendary man. According to the sagas, Harald and his Varangians had approached the walls of one of these four towns and, lacking the manpower to take it outright through assault, settled into a siege. Unfortunately, the town was far too well supplied to be waited out, and with the two traditional options of siegecraft now off the table, he would have to get creative. While bedridden with a sudden and severe illness, Harald had an idea. Knowing his men were well aware of his sickly state, he capitalized off of this ailment to exploit the age-old army tradition of the soldier rumor mill. Remaining in his tent at all times, even after recovering, he continued to perform the role of a disease-ridden man too weak to leave his tent, playing the part with such devotion that if anyone wished to speak to him, they would have to enter his tent as he never left it to meet anybody. He refused to emerge, not for food, exercise, or even to run his army. Eventually, his ruse began to tell. Rumors within the Varangian camp began to spread and, with his camp well within views of the city walls, even the besieged Sicilian townsfolk began to get the feeling that something was amiss. Unable to show his face, the Norse king, they assumed, was too busy fighting for his life against some unknown disease. 
Stage 1 of Harold's plan was complete. After some time, the Varangians sent a small body of soldiers to the walls of the Sicilian town with a message. Their leader, the famed and feared Harald Sigurdsson, was dead. Now this of course was an absolute lie, but the townsfolk didn't know that. The Varangian delegation spoke of how their leader was a devout Christian, the brother of the great Christian king of Norway, Olaf, and how his last wishes were to be buried in one of the town's beautiful churches. The townsfolk, fairly pious individuals themselves and not wanting to deny the man his last wish, decided to allow it, and after agreeing upon a date in the very near future, went to begin arrangements for the burial. When the report of his burial reached Harald within his tent, the general was elated. Stage two of his plan was now complete. So began the third and final stage of the operation. Upon the day of the burial, the town's guards opened the gates of the wall. Before them lay the clergy and a vast audience of men and women, eagerly awaiting the Varangian honor guard, who held Harald's coffin hoisted high above them. The honor guard, composed of just enough men to make up an able fighting force, but not quite enough men to be too suspicious, began to walk towards the gate, ceremoniously dressed in their finest arms and armor. But as the warriors moved closer to the gate, they began to step with purpose, and their speed rapidly increased, now charging the gates full tilt, still in possession of the coffin. The townsfolk, witnessing the charge and now wise to what was going on, desperately tried to close the gates in time. But it was too late. The Varangian honor guard plowed into the gate, forcing their way in and entering the city, leaving the coffin behind to prop open the gate. With the gate stuck open, now sprung Harald from the coffin, leading his army from the front as behind him now surged the entire Varangian army, themselves sprinting into the open gate and into the exposed town. Caught entirely off guard and now completely overwhelmed, the town was left to the mercy of the invaders. Homes, businesses, churches, and municipal buildings of all kinds were ransacked, looted, and destroyed. So great was the wealth of the town that its riches alone would greatly benefit Harald in the not-too-distant future. We'll get there. Despite his successes in Sicily, this siege would unfortunately be the high watermark for Harald in the Mediterranean. Shortly thereafter, in 1041, a Lombard-Norman revolt would break out in the Byzantine-controlled southern Italy. The Byzantines would meet the rebels in battle on two separate occasions, and, despite the presence of the Varangian Guard both times, would end each engagement soundly defeated. Not seeing any progress in Italy, Byzantine leadership decided that the empire had more pressing matters to attend to, and in late 1041, Harald and his Varangians were transferred to Bulgaria. Now in Bulgaria, Harald and his Varangians faced a far more immediate threat to the empire than the revolt in Italy. They had been attached to a Byzantine army tasked with the destruction of a Bulgar rebellion under a man by the name of Peter Doyan, proclaimed by his supporters as the so-called Emperor of Bulgaria. Crossing the Danube River and moving south, the Bulgars began to cut a swath through the Byzantine heartland, seizing the western Balkans all the way from Belgrade in the north to the Greek city of Larissa in the south, casting aside any local defenders and striking fear into the heart of Constantinople. In response to the Bulgar threat, Emperor Michael IV mustered together an army approximately 10,000 men strong, complete with Harald and some 500 Varangians, before marching west into northern Greece. There, they caught the rebel army on the march just south of the Voros Mountains, at a place named Ostrovo Lake. Turning to meet the attackers, the Bulgarians readied their defense. Despite being led by Peter Delian, a man blind in both eyes, something usually considered a disqualifier as far as military command is concerned, the Bulgars put up a stiff resistance to the Byzantine assault, presenting themselves as worthy opponents to the standard Byzantine infantry. With the battle at a stalemate, Emperor Michael committed his Varangian guard, sending forth the shock troops to do what they do best. Kill. Fight. Win. Led by Harald, 
The Varangians rushed into the fray, wielding their large two-handed Dane axes with great ferocity, carving through their Bulgar opposition to such a degree that large contingents of Bulgar troops began to retreat on the very spot. Attempting to flee with the Varangians on their hills, the Bulgar retreat turned into a complete and utter rout. The Bulgarian army had been shattered on the field, yet another victim of the Varangian guard, who had struck the fatal blow against their upstart rebellion. For his actions that day, as a testament to his tenacity in combat, Harald received the nickname of Bulgar Burner. The name by which history remembers him as, Hardrada, was still yet to come. Victorious on the field of battle, Harald and his men returned to Constantinople. Shortly after his return, however, Harald suffered a tremendous blow to his standing in the realm. In early December 1041, Emperor Michael IV, Harald's financier and key supporter, lay dead, killed by disease. With Michael's absence, Harald was thrust into a brand new battlefield, one in which he had no real experience, Byzantine court politics. For the sake of time, I'm going to try and poorly condense a vast web of political intrigue and conspiracy. Long story short, those with real political power in the Byzantine political machine now want Michael IV's golden boy Harald gone. There, I hope that sums it up. Harald was accused of numerous fabricated crimes, murder, defying a noblewoman, and fraud, just to name a few. At one point, he was even thrown into jail, from which he promptly escaped, likely with some help from sympathetic friends on the inside. After all, many of the imperial jails were guarded by the very Varangians he had led into battle only months prior. It was now clear to Harald that he was no longer welcome in the empire he had so admirably served for so long. He had already experienced more than enough for the Byzantine political arena. It was time to go. Now free, he requested permission from the Byzantine court to leave the empire, this request almost certainly being a mere formality. I say that because, to no one's surprise, his formal request was formally declined. But a simple no doesn't stop a man like Harald Sigurdsson. Working quickly, he gathered together a small retinue of loyal companions and two ships. They are going to make a break for it. Departing Constantinople, Harald and his retinue traveled to the city's southern side, quickly loading themselves and their belongings onto a pair of sailing ships before hurriedly racing north for the Bosporus, the narrow strait that passes through the European and Asian halves of Constantinople, connecting the Mediterranean Sea in the south to the Black Sea in the north. But there was a problem. The Byzantine court had quickly gotten wind of the runaway's plot, and they certainly weren't going to just let them up and vanish. While the ships pushed hard towards the Bosporus, the Byzantines called up their secret weapon. Desperate to kill or capture the fleeing Norsemen, the court ordered the raising of the fearsome cross-strait chain, an immense iron chain that spanned from the European half of the city in the west to the Asian half in the east, more than capable of blocking any and all traffic between the Mediterranean and Black Seas. Usually used in times of war against armadas, it was now being targeted at Harald himself. Watching as the chain was drawn up before them, Harald knew there was no time to act and ordered the vessels forward. Coming upon the chains, the first of the two ships slammed into the iron and was utterly destroyed, violently casting splintered debris and screaming men into the water. Behind them, on board the second ship, Harald quickly surveyed the situation and, exhibiting his mastery of the seas, took advantage of the tumultuous sea, leading his vessel atop the waves over the chain just in the nick of time. Once free of the chain, there is nothing the Byzantines could do to stop his escape. Damning him from the shore, they watched powerless as Harald sailed north beyond the horizon into the safety of the Black Sea. Charting his course, he steered his vessel towards the only man he knew he could trust, Jaroslav the Wise. Reaching the edge of the Kievan realm in late 1042, Harald returned to Jaroslav's court almost shortly after his arrival. However, he would not stay for long, only a few years, as it was from Kiev, Harald decided, that he would launch his bid for the Norwegian throne. 
Throughout his time in Byzantine service, Harald had, through both pay and plunder, accumulated a large amount of wealth, the vast majority of which had been shipped back to Kiev for safekeeping. As a testament to the two men's bond, not only had Harald entrusted Yaroslav to watch over his newfound fortune, but Yaroslav had even given his daughter's hand to Harald in marriage, no small act considering his other daughters at the time were married off to great European kings. After settling his affairs in Kiev, he bid adieu to Yaroslav and, in late 1045, with his coffers overflowing from the spoils of conquest and with a new bride at his side, Harald departed for Scandinavia, hell-bent on reclaiming his home. Landing in Sweden in 1046, Harald was met with terrific news. King Knut the Great, ruler of the North Sea's empire, the man who had wrested Norway from King Olaf and forced Harald into exile, had died nearly a decade before. But that itself wasn't even the big news, as, perhaps more importantly, all of Knut's heirs had also died in the following years, mostly of illness or alcoholism. With Knut's line dead, the door seemed wide open for Harald to waltz in and take his rightful place atop the Norwegian throne. Except, it wasn't. Accompanying the good news concerning the deaths of the Danish claimants was a potent piece of bad news. The throne wasn't empty. Worse, perhaps, it was held by a legitimate Norwegian ruler. Family, even. Enter the stage, King Magnus the Good of Norway. Remember Harald's nephew, son of Olaf, who had already been in Kiev for some time before Harald's entry after the Battle of Stiklestad? The one that was important at the time when we mentioned him a while back? Well, after the deaths of King Knut and his heirs, it was Magnus who had stepped into the vacuum and seized the thrones of Norway and Denmark. That's right, he was the ruler of both Norway and Denmark. Talk about a double threat. Now, the ascension of Magnus presented a problem to Harald for two reasons. First off, he was a very popular ruler with popular policies. Though illegitimate, he was the son of the legendary Olaf, and the people loved him. After all, you don't receive the name Magnus the Good for nothing. It's usually earned for good reason. Secondly, not only was he a popular ruler, but he was a legitimate one as well. Magnus had achieved the throne at a very young age through diplomatic means, and then proceeded to retain control through successful military action. In 1043, when pretender to the throne, Sven Estridsson, nephew of King Knut, challenged Magnus with an army of 15,000 outside the Danish town of Hedeby, Magnus, wielding his deceased father's personal battle axe, led his army in the field and absolutely annihilated Sven's forces, the pretender himself only just escaping with his life. Magnus was not a man Harald could simply push over. Weighing his options, it was clear that Harald wasn't going to seize the throne through outright force. So he chose a more political approach, though it wasn't without that stereotypical Viking flair for violence. Seeking out Sven Eshardson, Harald chose to ally with him, and, after recruiting a suitable number of warriors, the two spent much of 1046 incessantly raiding up and down the Danish coast in a bid to display Magnus' weakness as a ruler and force him to come to terms. This tactic was surprisingly successful, and only a few months after the raids began, Magnus approached Harald to begin negotiations concerning the power politics of the region. Upon the completion of negotiations, as per their agreement, Magnus would retain his place as king of both Denmark and Norway, though he would proclaim Harald co-ruler of Norway, a king per se, though Magnus would always have the final say. It is believed that Harald's vast fortune, especially that accrued through the sack into the Sicilian town after playing dead, was of immeasurable aid in securing his seat. Swen, however, was entirely left out of the agreement. But don't feel too bad for the snuff Dane. He'll be back. For the rest of the year 1046 and the larger part of 1047, affairs in the realm remained relatively calm, though royal tensions were extremely uneasy. Harald, co-ruler of Norway, continued to jockey for full control of the crown, requiring Magnus' constant political attention lest his uncle become too powerful and try to rebel. 
As a further pain in Magnus' side, Sven spent his time taking out his anger on being left out of the peace deal by launching raids upon the Danish coast. Not anything decisive or particularly damaging in the grand scheme of things, but a consistent nuisance at the very least. But there's hope on the horizon for good King Magnus. Literally, on the horizon. Ever since King Canut and his children had exited from the history books, the island of Britain had been in absolute turmoil from the resulting power vacuum. Why not take the chance to rebuild the North Sea's empire, Magnus must have thought. He already had Denmark and Norway, all he needed was Britain, and with avoiding the island's leadership, who better to fill it than him? It was a golden opportunity. Pulling the trigger on the idea, Magnus began to build up a massive invasion force consisting of hundreds of ships and thousands of men. Now, some of you fine listeners may be wondering, isn't it a bit risky to sail far away and leave your unprotected realm at the feet of two hostile claimants, with one of them actually holding political power? Won't he be overthrown? As history tells us, the answer is almost certainly yes. However, in Magnus's case, we'll never know. Because in October 1047, Magnus abruptly passed away. Sources vary on how exactly he died, with some accounts recalling a fall while inspecting a shipyard, and others pointing towards poison. But at this stage, it doesn't matter. He's dead. And now, after decades wandering the world's battlefields in exile, Harald is finally the sole king of Norway and Den- Ha! Nope! In one of history's greatest acts of post-mortem defiance, one last F.U. from beyond the grave, Magnus named Sven Estridsson his heir to the Danish throne. Harald, king of Norway and Norway alone, was, quite understandably, absolutely livid and wasted no time in making things right. In early 1048, he sailed south from Norway with a great host of loyal men and ships, hell-bent on wresting control of Denmark from Sven. It was supposed to be a quick and decisive campaign, but those never really seem to pan out as advertised, do they? The conflict would drag on for a brutal 16 years. Though Harald's force would see much success on their numerous campaigns against Denmark, the moment they returned to Norway to rest and reconsolidate, all of their gains were completely undone. Trapped in this annual back-and-forth cycle, Harald's vast wealth was sucked dry by the demands of war, paying for endless wages and supplies. Swen, however, was not faring any better. His men were mostly helpless to stop the Norwegian invaders in person, and one account tells of how during a naval battle at an agreed-upon place and time, Swen's men threw themselves into the sea, choosing to drown rather than facing Harald's men in combat. Financially, the relentless sacking of Denmark was taking its toll, and once wealthy estates and pastures over time devolved into devastated wastelands. In 1049, for example, the Norwegians destroyed the thriving port of Hedeby, once the second most populated city in the Viking world. Its trade route already destroyed by war, the sacking of the port pushed the city over the edge, and the once bustling trade center would never recover. In the face of such damages and hardships, neither side could continue to fight forever, and weary of war and wishing to end the fighting, the two rulers agreed to a stand-up, conventional battle at the mouth of the Nisa River. Arriving at that mouth of the river with a fleet of 300 ships, Harald led an army equally composed of fresh peasant levies, known as the Third, and seasoned Viking warriors, veterans of the endless campaigns against the Danes, some even having fought under Olaf against Knut decades prior. Sitting aboard their vessels, the Norwegians waited for hours, but the Danes failed to show up at the agreed-upon time. Understandably, Harald assumed the Danes got cold feet. Remember, in their last agreed-upon battle, the Danes just flung themselves into the sea to avoid coming to blows. Keeping in mind his depleted coffers, Harald allowed his furred levies to return home to Norway, and they departed late in the afternoon. But, just as the levies began to disappear beyond the waves, and the evening began to take hold of the sky, a cry leapt out from one of Harald's men. 
Coming over the horizon, a new fleet of ships had been spotted, these ones heading right for the Norwegian battle group. As his fur had long departed, Harald immediately knew who these vessels belonged to. The Danes. Sailing into the mouth of the Nisa River, Swen and his fleet now outnumber the Norwegians two to one, entering the estuary opposite Harald and trapping the Norwegians with the sterns of their vessels pressed against the shore. Hemmed in by the Danes, Harald and his men had nowhere to run. But why run when the enemy has come to you? Thinking on his feet, Harald ordered most of his ships to be lashed together in a tight line facing the Danes, essentially forming the naval equivalent of a shield wall. Seeing this, Swen ordered his fleet to do the same, matching the width of Harald's line but creating a deeper overall formation on account of the higher number of Danish troops. Harald's force, though outnumbered, was not outmatched. To a man, they were all experienced raiders and hardened warriors, facing a Danish army composed of mere levies, peasant militia who possessed lighter armor, poorer arms, and far less skill. Thus, it was a fair fight, and as the two chain fleets sailed closer to each other, the Vikings would fight it out the old-fashioned way. Spurred on by their superior numbers, the Danish ships charged forward, stopping just shy of the Norwegian line in order to utilize their archers, firing into the packed mass of Norwegians at close range. Their arrows, however, had little effect on account of the defenders' great Norse shields and, relatively unbothered by the arrow fire, it was now the Norwegians' turn to act. Surging ahead, Harald crashed his line of warships into that of the Danes, the force of the collision sending many of the Danes stumbling down to the decks of their longships. Clambering to their feet, they rose just in time to meet the rush of determined Norwegian warriors, boarding the Danish vessels with an unrivaled brutality. The battle rapidly took the shape of a bloody melee, the two shield walls fighting upon the wooden-hulled vessels as they would upon the fields of land. The blood of the fallen painted the sea beneath them, crowded with an ever-increasing number of floating corpses, pockmarked by wounded, dying men struggling to keep their heads above the water. In the battle's initial stages, Swen's numbers were no match for the skilled Norwegians, but as the battle began to take its toll on both sides, for every Norwegian that dropped, Harald's line grew that much weaker, whereas Swen's casualties were quickly replaced with additional men. The lethal shoving match went well into the night, and the Norwegian warriors found themselves harder and harder pressed. Eventually, it became clear to Harald that unless drastic measures were taken, the sheer number of Swen's fires would carry the day for the Danes. The time for decisive action was now. Having learned from Olaf's defeat at Stiklestad, Harald had kept a small number of ships free from the lash formation under his second-in-command, Jarl Hakon Iverson, in order to make up a mobile reserve, able to be called upon when needed. And, well, the time was now. Recognizing that the battle could not be won from the front, Harald dispatched Iverson and the Mole Reserve to sail around their right flank and into the Danish left. Quickly tossing aside the light Danish screen meant to protect their line from such actions, Iverson and his ships barreled into the Danish left, hacking their way into the exposed Danish flank and opened up a new front line. Squeezed from two sides and with casualties mounting at an alarming rate, the Danish levies began to retreat, ship by ship. Fighting against the Norwegian flank attack, Swen was captured by Iverson himself, but was released out of respect, as Iverson once served under Swen's very command. Almost a quarter of Swen's ships were entirely cleared of all personnel in the fighting, but most of the fleet, with Swen included, escaped back to Denmark. Despite this costly Norwegian victory and the heavy casualties suffered by the Danes, the Battle of the Nisa River proved to be indecisive, as in the aftermath, neither side was any closer to accomplishing their aims. Punished for releasing Swen and denying the chance to end the war, Iverson was forced into exile. Though further raids and campaigns were undertaken against Swen for an entire two years following the battle, Harald was unable to conquer Denmark. After over a decade and a half of constant warfare, both sides were bankrupt and bloodied. With no fight left on either side, 
peace was made in 1064. The conditions, status quo antebellum. Despite all the blood and treasure spent, nothing was accomplished by either side. No land changed hands, no rulers were raised or deposed, and no one grew any richer. But it was no matter. With peace to his south, Howard could now turn his attention elsewhere. For a time, he turned his attention inwards, focusing on the long-neglected internal matters of the kingdom, smelling blood in the water throughout Harald's failed Danish campaigns, especially so after his failed conquest of Denmark. The Norwegian aristocracy had been struggling against Harald for some time, always in a bid for more power. It was actually here in Norway, consolidating his rule over the Norwegian elite, that Harald earned his famous nickname, the one history remembers him by, Hardrada, meaning stern ruler. Though the reason for his name may not be as glorious as having been won on the field of battle, it was certainly no bulger burner, Harald Hardrada would not stick to domestic politicking for long. Like his deceased nephew Magnus before him, Harald would turn his attention to that rainy little island in the North Sea that had been on the receiving end of seemingly every Viking invasion that comes to mind. Britain. After the death of King Canut and his royal heirs, the throne of England, Britain's largest and strongest polity, was quickly seized upon in 1042 by Edward the Confessor, one of the last Anglo-Saxon kings. Notice the foreshadowing. Though popular, he died suddenly on January 5th, 1066 without any heirs, and Harold Godwinson, the prominent Duke of Wessex and England's second most powerful nobleman after the late king, promptly took the throne for himself. It is important to note that now our episode has a Harald and a Harold. To prevent any confusion with their names, from here on out they will be referred to as Harald and Godwinson. Crowned on January 6th, Godwinson instantly faced resistance from two of Britain's most powerful earls, the brothers Edwin and Morcar though their loyalty would quickly be secured through ties of familial marriage to the House of Godwin. Tostig Godwinson, the exiled brother of the new English king, had meanwhile laid claim to the English throne himself, though he had no means to act upon it. Well, at least not yet. I mention these names, Edwin, Morcar, and Tostig, because we'll be seeing them all again very soon. As the English dealt with the transition of power from one ruler to another, word of Godwinson's kingly ascension reached Harald in Norway. Upon hearing this, Hardrada decided to throw his own hat into the ring of English royal secession by claiming his right to the throne based upon some thin link to a distant agreement between long-dead rulers. Don't worry about the details. Mustering together his army to exert the claim, in the late summer of 1066, Harald would once again set sail for new lands, making course for England, where a new throne most assuredly lay ahead. On the way, Harald stopped to resupply and recruit a few additional soldiers in the Orkney Islands, lands which had once been held by the aristocratic family friend who had sheltered the young and wounded Harald decades before after the Battle of Stickelstad. More pertinent to the invasion, however, it was somewhere around here before the invasion of England itself, where Harald was joined by Tostig Godwinson, almost certainly recruited as a strong future political ally who could bolster Harald's legitimacy and steer the English aristocracy into better accepting Harald's eventual rule. Heading south from the Orkneys at the head of 300 ships and 10,000 men, Harald and his fleet sailed for the city of York, one of the largest in England, and an excellent location to serve as an early power base from which to conquer the rest of the island. The city would not simply bow to the invader, however, and intelligence reports from the island let Harald know well in advance that local English forces were already preparing to defend their homes. Before Harald could do anything else, they would have to be dealt with. Harald landed his ships on the banks of the Ouse River, ten miles south of York, and began to disembark his warriors for the coming engagement. But as he readied his army for their English campaign, a new foe sallied out to meet them. 
Opposing the Norwegians stood an Anglo-Saxon army led by two of the most powerful nobles in England, the aforementioned brothers Edwin and Morcar, earls of Mercia and Northumbria, standing at the head of approximately 5,000 hastily levied fighting men. Arrayed for battle in the vicinity of the village of Fulford, the Anglo-Saxons stood in an offensive line, intent on denying the Norwegians any freedom of movement should they try and move for York. Outnumbered two to one, they stretched their line between the Ouse River and a nearby swamp, forcing Harald to assault their position head-on in a bid to somewhat negate his numerical superiority. Honestly, not the worst plan given the circumstances. Anchoring the flanks with some sort of environmental obstacle is a tried-and-true tactic, something performed by countless forces the world over, both before and since Edward and Morcar made their stand. It was worth a shot. Racing from ship to shore as fast as they could, Harald and his Norwegians began to form up for battle a short distance away from the Anglo-Saxon line, exacerbating their already tenuous situation on account of their inferior numbers. Edward and Morcar knew that the martial prowess of the Viking warriors would do much to negate their current thin defensive posture. But standing before them at that moment was only Harald and a token Viking force, a far cry from the grand total of 10,000 warriors brought from Norway. As most of the Norwegians were still at sea or busy actively landing their ships, Edwin and Morcar continued to observe the Vikings' movements, deliberating as to what should be done as more and more men continued to trickle into Harald's formation, slowly building up the Norwegian ranks. To remain in a defensive position would only serve to give the enemy the initiative and decreasing their own chances of victory. The brothers knew they had to act while the invaders were still exposed and unprepared. But the earls had to wait. Harald, never so clever, had chosen his landing site well as a high tide, too deep to reliably assault through, separated the two armies for much of the day. The Anglo-Saxons were forced to stand with bated breath, watching the Viking line grow stronger and stronger, praying the tide would drop before the Norwegian force grew too powerful to overcome. After what must have seemed like an eternity, one of the orders was given. Morcar and his Northumbrians charged down from their positions, careened into the Viking's center and right flank, home of Harald's least experienced warriors, with Tostig Godwinson among them. The Northumbrians stabbed and sliced their way into the Viking lines, making huge initial gains, though they quickly lost their steam. Norwegian reinforcements desperately rushed to fill out the Viking position as best they could, and the way into the line quickly settled. Despite the furious brawl happening on the Viking right, Edwin and his Mercians refused to join Morcar in the charge, perhaps trusting the Northumbrians to win the battle themselves and choosing instead to guard their flanks and rear. Regardless of their reason, the Mercians marched down from the hill and closed the distance between them and the Norwegians, taking a position just adjacent to the Northumbrians, though remaining unengaged. Similarly, Harald and the Viking left, composed of the most experienced veteran warriors, refused to turn inwards to aid their hard-pressed brothers-in-arms, desperately holding out against the Northumbrians. With the cacophony of battle beside them, Harald and Edwin found themselves staring at each other across the battlefield, their respective contingents fixated upon each other as chaos erupted nearby. But Harald Hardrada is a calculating man. Harald Hardrada is an aggressive man. Legends aren't born in passivity. Unleashing a blood-curling yell, Harald and his Norwegians broke into a sprint and threw themselves upon Edwin and his Mercians, cleaving into their frightened shield wall and making short work of their levied foe. As bodies fell one atop the other, the Mercians were pushed further and further back, powerless to stem the tide of the Viking assault. As the men fled, Edwin rallied together what few Mercian survivors he could to the defense of York, something he knew would soon be needed. Morcar, meanwhile, remained with his Northumbrians in the thick of the fighting, attempting to break the stalemate. Positioned on the low ground where the high tide had once stood and focused on trying to defeat the Viking menace in front of him, he failed to see his brother's retreat. Unbeknownst to him, he and his Northumbrians were now entirely isolated. The Viking left, utterly victorious, ended their pursuit of the Mercians, turned around, and plowed into the rear of the beleaguered Northumbrians. 
Though the rear of the Anglo-Saxon formation attempted to form a shield wall and resist the charge, it was all far too little, far too late. Caught between a hammer on one side and an anvil on the other, the overwhelmed Northumbrian line was crushed on the spot and disintegrated almost immediately. Fighting for their lives, Morcar's forces broke into a desperate rout, every man for himself. The Battle of Fulford had come to an end, and Harald Hardrada, despite some difficulties, had held the field. Of his 10,000-man army, only about 6,000 actively took place in the battle against the Anglo-Saxons' 5,000, so from a numbers perspective, it was a fairly even fight. Though this first victory against the English was cause for great celebration, it came at a heavy price. Approximately 1,700 men lay dead on both sides, but Harald had taken the lion's share of casualties, losing just shy of 1,000 men due to his reliance in the battle on fresher troops. Regardless, the road to York was now open. Knowing resistance was futile, the city quickly surrendered to the Viking army who, in a surprising change of pace, left it relatively untouched. After all, why loot your future power base? As per the custom of the time, Harald exerted his newfound control over the region and requested hostages from the local English nobility, a method to ensure good behavior on the part of the hostages' families. It was actually an extremely common practice, historically speaking, used by peoples and civilizations all across the globe in order to maintain peace, and was successful more often than not. The line of thinking, of course, was, you wouldn't want to rebel against the Vikings if they held your son or daughter, would you? As the Vikings awaited their hostages and took a well-deserved rest after their cross-ocean voyage and subsequent victory at Fulford, King Harold Godwinson was on the move. Leaving London with his retinue of Huskarls, professional heavy infantry similar to Harald's seasoned Viking warriors, he had traveled 180 miles in four days by foot, marching all the way from London to the vicinity of York, recruiting additional men along the way, mostly furred peasant levies. En route, Godwinson had received reports of the Anglo-Saxon defeat in the position of Harald's army. The Norwegians were currently camped outside the walls of York at the nearby Stamford Bridge. It was his goal to take them by surprise. Nearing York late in the day on September 24, 1066, Godwinson and his army encamped on the opposite side of the city to the Vikings, making camp for the night near the village of Tadcaster. As far as he could tell, Harald and his Norwegians were still entirely oblivious to Godwinson's presence. Thus, the decision was made. They shall strike at dawn. Whether Harald believed Godwinson would remain in southern England in case of a separate Norman invasion that was rumored to occur, more on that later, or move up to face him head-on, it was evident that Harald and his men were utterly unaware of his foe's position and received no intelligence pertaining to the Anglo-Saxon movements. As a result, the Vikings were in a poor position since Fulford, having merely loitered and rested for an entire week. Harald's army was not concentrated in any way, being strewn about a camp on the eastern bank of the river with a further 3,000 or so, roughly a third of the army, down south, watching over and tending to the ships. To make matters worse, the bulk of the Norwegians' protective body armor, key equipment for a warrior in any age, was not on their persons or with them in the camp, but rather laid aboard the ships out of sight and out of mind on account of the unusually hot weather and perceived distance of the enemy. But the Anglo-Saxons weren't far off. They were quite literally just down the road. In fact, the only meaningful battle position the Vikings possessed was a small contingent of warriors positioned on the west bank of the river, guarding the bridge as sentries, though their paltry numbers meant that they'd easily be swept aside by any determined enemy. As another lackadaisical day turned into another relaxed night, Harald and his warriors drifted off to sleep, completely unaware of the historic day that now lay before them. As dawn broke on the 25th of September 1066, an entire army of 15,000 Anglo-Saxons descended upon Stanford Bridge. 
Suddenly and without warning, the small Viking detachment on the western bank found itself on the receiving end of a charge as Godwinson's vanguard set upon them. Hopelessly outnumbered, the small element of desperate Norwegians fought to the last man, buying precious time for their fellows on the opposite bank. Upon their annihilation, the Anglo-Saxons moved to storm the bridge, but according to Anglo-Saxon chronicles, were held up by one man, a lone warrior, barring passage through the narrow bridge, denying an entire army the freedom of movement their surprise attack so crucially required. Masterfully wielding his two-handed Danaxe, he slew dozens of English warriors in single combat before falling to a wound suffered from below. A crafty Anglo-Saxon soldier had gone upstream, entered a barrel, and rode it downriver underneath the bridge from where he drove his spear up into the Viking's groin. With the bridge now clear, Godwinson's army surged across and took up positions opposite a hastily assembled Viking line, the sacrifices of the Norse forlorn hope having bought Harald and his army precious minutes to organize a defensive shield wall. Now across, with their Huskarls in the center and weaker Ferds on the flank, the entirety of the English line charged all at once against the Viking shield wall, hurling their bodies upon the stalwart defenders and beginning a bloody struggle that would go on for hours. Though under-equipped and outnumbered, the unarmored Norwegians were a skilled veteran army, more than capable of standing against this sudden Anglo-Saxon force in a stand-up fight, especially against an exhausted one who had only the day before finished off a near 200-mile movement. The fighting carried on well into the day, as the Vikings made the English pay for every inch, fighting valiantly throughout the day and slaying the Anglo-Saxons in droves. Despite this short-term success, the Vikings' lack of armor proved to be an insurmountable disadvantage. Every glancing blow from an Anglo-Saxon sword drew blood. Every errant spear thrust that didn't pound against a shield found its way into the leg of a Viking warrior, and nearly every blow to the head spelt certain doom. The Anglo-Saxon numbers began to tell as the Norwegian shield wall received seemingly unending punishment. Harald was just far too outmanned. Unfortunately for the Norwegians, they found themselves in the same predicament as the one at the Nisa River, but this time, there were no reserves. A third of Harald's army was still with the boats. Where were they? He would never find out. Deep in the heat of battle, leading from the front with tenacity and courage as he always had, Harald Hardrada, scourge of the Mediterranean, destroyer of Bulgars, bane of the Danes, and the king of Norway, was slain by an arrow to the throat. Hearing of their fearless commander's demise, the still hard-pressed Viking line fought on, fighting both for their lives and for vengeance, slaying countless Anglo-Saxons in defense of Harald's lifeless body. Yet all the fervor and ferocity in the world couldn't save them now, and the Viking line began to crumble. Fighting to the bitter end, the Norsemen were encircled by the Anglo-Saxons and subsequently annihilated, each man earning his place in Valhalla. But the battle wasn't over yet. As the main body of the Viking army fought its last stand, help was on the way. Isinor, Harald's prospective son-in-law, was sprinting into the fray at the head of the 3,000-man contingent who had been to the south guarding the ships. Learning about the attack on the bridge, he had readied his men, donning full armor and equipment, and they began to run some ten miles in a desperate bid to relieve their beleaguered friends. Though exhausted from their run, some so much that they had died along the way, the Vikings broke into a sprint at the last second and charged full tilt on the exposed right flank of the English line. Hailed in the sagas as Aura Storm, the sudden attack met with immediate success, slaughtering many of the stunned levies who stood in their way, nearly breaking through the peasants' line. Nonetheless, they had arrived too late. The victorious English army, having now eradicated the main Viking force, pivoted south and plunged into Aura's exhausted warriors. Though fearsome and courageous, Aura's storm would prove fruitless, as exhausted men, now bearing the brunt of the entire Anglo-Saxon army, began to suffer increasingly heavy casualties. In the midst of the combat, Icing Aura was suddenly killed, and realizing the battle was lost, his men began to retreat. 
hounded by the Anglo-Saxons the entire way back to their ships. Many Norwegians were slain along the way, with many more drowning in the nearby river, opting to throw themselves fully armored into the treacherous waters in a fatal bid to escape. Advancing on the beach, the Anglo-Saxons held the Norsemen's lives in their very hands. Marching closer to the Viking longships, Harold Godwinson called his army to a halt and sent forth an emissary who was received by Harold's youngest son, Olaf, who had been ordered by his father to stay with the boats and did not participate in the fighting. Olaf was offered a deal. He was allowed to leave England alive with his surviving men on one condition, that they never set foot in England again. Thus, he was forced to choose between two options, leave England and never return, or be killed on the spot with his men. You can probably guess which one he chose. And so, just as suddenly as they had appeared, the Viking fleet vanished, as Olaf and the surviving Vikings departed the British Isles once and for all. Of the 300 ships that his father had made landfall with, there were now only enough men left standing to crew with 24 of the vessels on the return voyage to Norway, a casualty figure of over 90%. Just a week prior, Harald Hardrada had entered England with 10,000 men. Now utterly defeated, only a few hundred made it home. Left behind them in Britain lay the bodies of over 9,000 proud Viking warriors all in the vicinity of York. 8,000 of that number had perished in combat at Stamford Bridge, each man falling alongside their king. Harald Hardrada, the epitome of a Viking warrior, led from the front until the bitter end. The death of Harald Hardrada and the defeat of his army at the hands of Harald Godwinson is often used by modern historians as the symbolic end of the Viking Age. The Viking raids did continue in the wake of Harald's death, they never matched the success of their predecessors. Where Viking raids in the past had been viewed as existential threats for the North Sea polities, they soon devolved into increasingly minor nuisances before eventually ceasing altogether. With the end of the Viking era, England, meanwhile, entered an entirely new epoch of its own. Though victorious at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, King Harold Godwinson's army had received a beating. The exact casualty figures are unknown, but it is believed that out of the approximately 15,000 men that went into battle, a full third now lay dead on the field. But the Anglo-Saxon troubles weren't over. On September 28, 1066, only three days after the Battle of Stamford Bridge and Harald's last stand, a Norman army under William the Conqueror landed in southern England. Leaving some of his army in the north to secure the area, Godwinson marched the rest of his army south before stopping in London for one final round of resupply and reinforcement. On October 14, 1066, Godwinson and his Anglo-Saxons, numbering somewhere around 8,000 men, took positions atop a hill 11 kilometers north of the town of Hastings, where they were soundly defeated by the Norman invaders. Heavily engaged in the fighting, King Harold Godwinson, the last Anglo-Saxon king of England, was killed when a Norman arrow entered his eye. Decisively defeating the Anglo-Saxons at the Battle of Hastings, William the Conqueror was crowned King of England on Christmas Day, 1066, beginning Norman rule of the kingdom and establishing the foundations of the modern English state that we know today. Many historians claim that the actions of Harald and his men at Stamford Bridge only weeks prior were crucial in weakening Godwinson's military efforts, with some going so far to attribute the Norman success at Hastings more so to Harald than to William himself. Regardless of his influence at Hastings, however, the saga of Harald Hardrada is one of adventure and excitement, an unrivaled coming-of-age story in the first half, and a grand epic of Viking heroics in the second. It was our honor here at Expedition History to cover such a large-in-life figure, and if you think we did a good job, or were at least somewhat intrigued by any of it, please don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcasting platform and leave a review. We're a small operation, and every subscriber, download, and review counts. 
And with my self-promotion now out of the way, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to thank you all for listening to episode 3 of Expedition History, the saga of Harald Hardrada. Tune in next time as we jump forward a millennium and into the chaos of World War I. Once again, remember to rate, follow, and subscribe, and I'll see you next time on Expedition History.